My name is Hyatt Jackson, I'm from the Flood Innovation Centre at the University of Hull. So what does the Flood Innovation Centre do? Uh, we support businesses who are innovating um, in flood resilience to help them get their products and services to market more rapidly um, by linking them with resources um, and research coming out of the university and uh, academics and their expertise. Right. So what's it like being at COP26, sort of almost in the thick of it? <laughs> it's been really exciting actually. There's just a really good buzz here and it just feels like people are all sort of on the same page, really engaged. It's been fantastic actually. So what sort of aspects of climate change are uh, impacting, if you like, on the solutions you're working on? Oh, well, I mean, I think flooding is sort of a, a little bit unique in that we're already very much seeing the impacts of climate change on flooding. And it's a very real and very present problem that we're having. So that's where flood resilience comes into it. The water is increasing. We do need to deal with it now. Mm. Uh, and how are you doing that? Describe a little bit about the solutions you were demonstrating yesterday. Uh, well, one example, yeah, uh, sustainable drainage, which is something, a, a bit of a passion of mine, but um, also really big at the university uh, with our Suds Lab UK project. Um, just trying to learn more about um, how sustainable drainage can, can sort of affect the flow of water through our urban areas. Uh, and uh, describe a bit more, you were talking about the Suds project. Yeah, so um, the Suns Lab UK project is a uh, campus-wide, the University of Hull campus-wide project where we're monitoring the water flow in and out of the campus basically and through certain uh, sustainable drainage components that we have on already installed. Mm. So to an extent also, is if you can get nature to help, is some of the problem that we've lost some of the biodiversity that wouldn't normally have helped us in these situations and we're having sort of repair uh, the environment. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the more nature-based solutions that we can put back into our urban environments, the better, because nature is so very well equipped to deal with the excesses of water, whereas obviously all the hardscaping we have in urban areas is just run straight off it. Fantastic. So where do you get your passion for all of this? You say, you know, you, you're very energised by it all. Well, uh, sustainable drainage, for example, it really energises me because um, it has so many benefits. Um, I love the amenity benefits. It just makes people feel good to work and live around sustainable drainage measures. Um, and then, you know, biodiversity benefits, but also it's really good at slowing the water and holding the water back from going into our mains, mains drainage more rapidly. Mm. And being here at COP26, for you, what is the, the burning issue, particularly in your area of research? What, what, what is the thing you want to see happen? Well, obviously, I think with, with most people, I'd like to see the, um, the, the CO2 levels not rise any, any, any higher than they already have and sort of maintain that 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, because, like I said, we, we're already seeing the effects of it. It's, mm. And the water problem's not, it's, it's only going to get worse having that water in the wrong place at the wrong yeah, time. Yeah. And of course, we've lost, lost a lot of our natural lungs. There's been this talk about uh, stopping deforestation and parts of the Amazon now contributing carbon rather than taking it in. So we've got to work with nature, haven't we? It's a very fine exactly. balance. Absolutely, and things like woodlands and forests, they, they actually serve to hold back a lot of the water that would otherwise end up in our rivers uh, and possibly you know, causing flooding problems in the cities. 
So yes, absolutely, we need to maintain as much of the, the natural world as we possibly can. So which aspects of climate change keeps you up at night? <laughs> I think probably the the temperature change, the, mm. you know, the global temperature change. Um, I, when I see the fires in California, that has a, a pretty significant impact on me because that's where I'm from. And I know that, you know, people in California are sort of stuck indoors because of the smoke and they can't see the sun. And, and yes. I, I, that's really hard to hear about from all the way over here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, how optimistic are you? I mean, that we can do something about this, do you feel? Uh, I'm quite optimistic, actually. I think yeah. it's very important to sort of speak to what matters to people, to get them on board with it. Not everybody's going to understand the science, so I think we need to sort of make sure that everybody sees that we can carry on living our lives well, but, you know, make small changes to have an, a significant impact on that. Mm. And I guess while, you know, we're looking at the big picture, everybody can do their own bit. I know there's been a campaign recently for people who have window boxes or bits of garden to plant stuff and you know green up wherever they can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what our sustainable drainage um, interactor is really for, is, is to kind of show people how much of an impact on a small property these things can have. Green roofs, water butts, um, rain gardens, um, anything really that you can sort of put in a small space will hold water back from going into the main drainage in those sort of mid-sized storm events. It's really important that uh, the, the small businesses are, are, are sort of a really big part of the solution. Um, there's a lot of potential within small businesses for innovation. They're the people who are out there doing the work on the ground, especially in like construction, um, this construction sector. There's a lot of, there's a huge variety of, of expertise there and we really want to tap into that and we want people who are in that sector to realize that they can innovate and we're here to help them. There's loads of organizations that are out there to help them with that. I'm Dr. Christina Roggatz. I'm a research fellow at the Energy and Environment Institute of the University of Hull. I'm today uh, in the green zone at the Youth and Public Empowerment Day at COP26 and I will be showcasing our ocean acidification game called Krabby's Reef. We used Pac-Man which is very well known yes. but we also wanted to make ocean acidification which is a hidden process of climate change more accessible to people so we use Pac-Man, but instead of the Pac-Man, you are the crab. And instead of the ghost, <laughs> you have to actually run away from octopuses. Yeah. You have to keep eating the pellets to make sure that you can actually survive and keep your energy levels. But with every level that you succeed surviving, the ocean will become more and more acidic, as the pH coach will tell you. So the question is, how long can you survive? Your vision will be more and more impaired. Mm. And that is just representative of our research that has shown that crabs will be more and more impaired in their ability to smell their food. Mm. So, so how bad is ocean acidification and, and what's causing it? What are the mechanisms at play here? So ocean acidification is a process that happens because the CO2 that we put into the atmosphere is absorbed by the ocean, it reacts with the water, it produces carbonic acid which dissociates so it's basically disintegrating and therefore it forms acid. It makes our oceans more acidic to what they are today. This process happens everywhere but in some parts it just happens a bit more than in others. What it does to the animals is that it actually impairs corals in growing the shells. It impairs snails and other creatures that need it for calcification. Um, and it also, as we found, impairs the sense of smell of marine organisms. So is this a cumulative effect? Does it build or does it ebb and flow? 
it depends where you look. If we just look on average, it will just add up more and more and more because the ocean will become more and more acidic on average. But locally, it will highly depend on the fluctuations that we see in the environment. In the Humber estuary, for example, we do have pH fluctuations naturally, but they will be superimposed, so made more by ocean acidification through climate change. And is this through the extra carbon that's going into the sea? Yes, exactly. So ocean acidification happens because of the additional CO2 that we put into the atmosphere that then goes into the ocean and is absorbed. Mm. Is there anything historically we, we can refer to to see anything like this or is this a, a new phenomenon? No, it's absolutely um, something that didn't happen at this scale before. We had more or less stable pH for the last 600,000 years. And we're now changing it at a rate that is unprecedented in those timescales for the first time, which is really quick. And so it really doesn't really leave a lot of time to adapt to it. Mm. I mean, what can we do uh, to reverse this? Is this just connected with the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere? Yes, quite simply, it is as simple as save as much CO2 as you can. Mm. Because with every bit of CO2 we put into the atmosphere, it actually goes also partly into the oceans and enhances the effect. Now, on the other hand, what we observe in, in, in our experiments is that with all the CO2 we can remove again, so if we place the animals back in normal pH, they actually can recover. Right. So it's not something that's done and dusted for the future and we can't reverse it. It's reversible. It's a reversible effect, but we need to be really careful that we don't drive it too far. Mm. Well, if, as we see, CO2 levels do continue to rise in the short term and then stabilise, so not actually go down yet, what is the likely continued impact we'll see on the oceans and on marine life? So the con continued impact we're going to see is what we see already um, in terms of impacts on calcification. But what we will also increase to see is issues in terms of the communication of animals in the mm. sea. Because marine animals use their sense of smell to talk to each other quite vastly. Up to 80% of their life depends on sense of smell. Yes. So if we impair the sense of smell, we might actually eventually end up that the animals can't find their food. They can't find their predator. They can't find actually their mate or the best place that they want to call home. So the big problem they are going to have in the longer term is keeping the stability of the ecosystem going and the interactions that maintain this ecosystem and the surface services we rely on. So it could be quite devastating. It would be quite devastating. Mm. So uh, from your research, I mean, can all you really do is sound an alarm bell or can you develop any solutions or is it just ringing the alarm? So my research for the first time showed an additional problem, unfortunately, that we might have. But it also provides a huge opportunity because by being able to predict what might happen to the sensing of some of the animals or key processes like settlement of oysters or something that is commercially important in aquacultures, we can actually map and measure where pH values, temperature values, etc. are going to be stable or maintained in a range that's suitable for the animals. And we can map out where is it best to place an aquaculture farm or where is it better to not try and settle a new marine protected area mm. because that will be a highly affected area and therefore not really worth conserving in the future. So what's it like for you uh not only presenting this work but also doing it here at COP26? 
For me, it means a lot to be able to showcase the research at COP26. Also to voice that it's so important to take our young people along um, and educate them, but at the same time give them a voice and give them a say to strengthen the next generation. Because let's be honest, if it weren't for them taking a stand now, we wouldn't stand here at COP26 and really try to keep pushing. My presence here at COP26 is also on the back of being supported by a great team that made the game possible. So it was developed by Better Chester and is based on colleagues' ideas with uh, Chris Skinner and Flo Halstead at the Energy and Environment Institute. And we also um, co-created um, parts of it and is also showcased in the deep in Hull. And we're very proud that they also take on a lot of our research to showcase to the public there. I'm Patricia Morales, I'm the CEO of Philanthropy Cortesolari. How challenging is getting the balance right? Because if we want to use the oceans for absorbing carbon in a natural way, because there are also dangers of ocean acidification yes. as well from, from, from carbon. So how big a challenge is it going to be to, to sort of try and manage that to avoid uh, ocean acidification? Well, the acidification of oceans is, is already happening yes. and we are already very late, so it's urgent to, to do conservation. But when we talk about conservation, I don't know if you remember my, my graph, it's not, it's not only, it doesn't mean only to say, okay, we are not going to, to have any kind of aquaculture in this area, let's say. We really need to focus also on the economic side, social side, the community and so on. So. In North Patagonia, what we have been trying to do is to avoid or to regulate the traffic, maritime traffic, because this is one of the main causes of acidification and the agriculture. And at the same time, we try to develop other kind of industry or startup in order to offer other kind of labor to the community that live in those places. Yeah, interesting. Because the reason I ask, I was talking to a scientist only yesterday. Uh, and they were seeing how acidification was affecting the communication senses of sea life. Actually, the acidification of oceans and, and the degradation of oceans provoke a lot of damage. For example, mm. in terms of whales, uh, we have the maritime traffic that make whales lose themselves into mm. the sea. And this is why they get collusion on their just die. Yes. And obviously, when you, when you know that a whale captures 33 tons of carbon, the equivalent of 1,000 tree, obviously it's make it makes obvious that you have to conserve the oceans. We have to put our eyes on the oceans and not only on the land. Usually people say, okay, we are going to do reforestation, but this is not the most efficient thing to do. This is important, obviously, but this is not the most efficient thing to do. So there's a solution there for sequestration, but we can't abuse the ocean. We are abusing of the oceans yes. from many years and people believe that the oceans are this very nice place for holidays and actually not it's a draft it's it's not yeah. nice at all so we cannot abuse anymore we have to protect our oceans but we need to put a price on the use of the oceans. this is the main challenge because the human knows that there is a price on land but we haven't incorporated yet the fact that we have to put a price on oceans and this is a challenge and then incorporate this price in the finance uh, in the financial world
Uh, my name is Ralph Shami, and I am Assistant Director in the Institute for Capacity Development at the International Monetary Fund. Right, now you gave a very clear, direct exposition in there about what needs to happen to create a, a meaningful value for carbon to drive things, to make things happen. Yes. <laughs> so, so just tell me first of all uh, about that very basic part that you explained in there about how you create a value. Nature already, so nature, or science tells us nature is incredibly valuable, but that the benefits of nature are for, until we came along, I'm sorry to say, we reside, resided in science. The rest of us, the non-scientists, the policymakers, the financial don't don't know how to read science. So what you really need to do only is to translate the, the benefits that exist in scientific language to basically dollar terms. So then the rest of us could say, oh, for example, the scientists tell us that the whales capture so much carbon equivalent to thousands of trees. But it's not written in this language. It's written, as you know, the scientific lingo. So you would not know about it. It's not reported about it. I come along by mistake, and I am trying to help the scientists save the whales. And I say, what's going on? They say, well, the, do you know that they capture so much carbon? I say, oh my goodness, I know the price of carbon. You tell me how much I can calculate the value of the service, not the value, the intrinsic value. Intrinsic value is priceless. Just a service to society. Now, if you ask me, why now? Because the price of carbon five, six years ago was zero. Nobody was there. Tonight, today, right now, I checked it before I came, it's on $73. The expectation is going to be hundreds of dollars, which means right now, the, the value of the service of a, of a whale or an elephant or a tree or mangroves, is, is the, the price is going up. Which means anybody who owns those assets can, can actually benefit from it. But how do they benefit from it? Not from the sale of the asset, but the sale of the service of the asset. So, if you have whales in your water, the whales produce, uh, capture so much carbon, you can sell that, the carbon service. Basically, you're paying the whales a, a, like a salary, if you like. But the money comes in to protect the whales in perpetuity. That's very important to protect the local communities, the fishermen, all of these people that live around and impacted by the whales. It's the same thing for the elephants. The government benefits because people have more money in their pockets. The fiscal base expands, so the government revenue expands, and the government doesn't even have to spend money on the protection because it's an asset that pays for itself. The offsetters are the demand people. They also benefit because they get to offset their carbon and they get to tell the world that we help to save the whales of this country and we help to alleviate poverty and we help to make the world a better, a better place for everyone. So I call this the win-win model. Why now? Price of carbon is going up, so there's a market. Technology is here which we didn't have before. We can identify whales. The Chileans have this incredible technology that can tell you what kind of whale, at what depth, at what location, in real time. I couldn't tell you that five years ago. Yes. It exists now. Mm. So the demand is there, the technology is there. Supply, nature, our mother nature has always been there. Mm. And what I'm saying is, let's bet on nature, as my colleague says here, let's bet on earth tech before we put all of our eggs in the high tech. Yeah. Very well put. You gave an illustration of the value, the current value, of 
whales and elephants. Just explain for us the current values. So the current value of a, of a whale, of, this, of the carbon service of a whale over its lifetime is over $2 million. Why? Because the whale is ca captures carbon on its body and when it dies, it takes that carbon to the bottom of the ocean. It's negatively buoyant. Now the scientists would tell you anything below 200 meters, you don't need to really actually reach the bottom. Anything below 200 meters, the carbon is sequestered for hundreds of years. When it's reached the bottom below 1,000, then it's for, you know, for millennia. Okay. But the whales also fertilize phytoplankton and it's the phyto are the lungs of the planet. So what the whales are doing, they're capturing carbon directly on their body and indirectly through their fertilization of phytoplankton. When you add up that contribution, it's in the millions of dollars, yes. that's one. Elephants are doing the same in the, in the forests of Africa. These are not the savanna elephants. It turns out that the scientists were telling me, as the elephant goes around, walks around, he trapes or she trapes on new vegetation, and she has a proclivity for liking plants with low fiber, leaving big trees to grow bigger. So they calculated that the presence of these elephants in the forest increased the ability of the forest to capture carbon by 7%. And when the forest lost elephants, the forest lost its ability to capture carbon. So it's really about, if you like, biodiversity. It's an interaction of the elephants with the forest. We are working, we're working with the scientists who, who told us about the, the seagrass. So we calculated the value of seagrass. It's one, over a trillion dollars. Imagine. Imagine a country that has seagrass. They can sell the carbon of the seagrass. To whom? To Microsoft, Google, all these, Netflix, oh, and in the capital markets to all those that have made commitments to offset their carbon footprint. Those guys get the offset. The countries get the, the dollars that come in to look after the asset forever and to look after local communities and indigenous populations. And that way, you, you have a better nature. People have sustainable and shared prosperity. The government has money. And the offsetters get to tick their SDGs and show how, what good citizens of the world they are. Incredible. And you said, we've been killing the sea with love. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, okay, because then, I, I, yesterday, two days ago, I gave a talk to some of the, you know, ethicists, and they're like, those evil people, meaning corporate guys, and I said, well, you're proselytizing, how far has it gotten you? Look at us. You see, we are facing disaster. We cannot demonize anybody. We need everybody inside the tent, holding hands, talking, and figuring out a solution. We've demonized the what's in it for me crowd. But they too have children. And the beauty is not in, in ostracizing people, the beauty is in bringing people on board around a vision that we are all live under the same roof. As Carl Sagan used to say, the only home we've ever known. I'll change it a bit and say it's the only home we will ever know. I am Paul Holtus, the founding president and CEO of the World Ocean Council, which is the global blue economy business and investment organization. So in this session, we looked at the way in which the ocean and coastal ecosystems can be harnessing blue carbon, uh, carbon sequestration in the ocean as a way to 
really draw down the carbon problem that we've got and, and really serve a function towards addressing our climate crisis. I mean, as we heard quite clearly, I mean, there's huge capacity, but to actually make this a working model depends on a bit of economics. Right, so this is all about the market economy, supply and demand. We have the potential for the ocean and coastal ecosystems to supply carbon sequestration. That needs a marketplace that puts a value on that carbon and a means to get it to market, and so then we need demand. And so we have a number of companies, a growing number of companies, who are making commitments to net zero uh, carbon, and so they need a place to be able to um, uh, achieve that goal by investing in uh, ecosystems that will, will sequester carbon. And so that is the financial equation here, and all of these pieces are starting to come into place. Uh, we ourselves are working on particularly the business side of it. There are, business that are businesses that are developing the technologies and the methodologies to ensure we've got carbon sequestration, verify it's taking place, and then put that carbon on the marketplace. So it's one of the initial hurdles here, philosophical. You've got to overcome the resistance to the fact you need some market economics. You've got to create a value to drive the finance to come in to actually make this work. That's right. And so the, the financial community, they are looking for verifiable carbon sequestration. So we need good, responsible business uh, operations that will provide that. Uh, the, there's a lot of um, concern about how this will work and whether the carbon will actually be sequestered for significantly long periods of time, whether or not it will have adverse environmental impacts on the coastal ecosystems or the ocean ecosystem. Um, and there's, so there's a need for good data, good science, good risk assessment, uh, transparency in the communication of data so that uh, other stakeholders can feel sure that this is being done in a responsible way. Um, as we, uh, we develop these negative emission technologies that the Paris Agreement requires. I mean, at the World Ocean Council, you've been addressing a whole range of issues connected with climate change and the environment for, for, for many years. Uh, how significant is this particular sector, do you feel, going forward? So the ocean is suffering from a wide variety of impacts and insults and, and sources of degradation. Uh, that, that accumulate across this global three-dimensional dynamic uh, ecosystem that, that is the, the ocean. And so it's a very uh, complex um, situation in which we need to address all of those impacts. They come from a variety of land-based sources, they come from a whole variety of ocean-based industries, and all of those points of, of, of impact and effect on the ocean need to be tackled so that we've got a healthy and productive ocean. A healthy and productive ocean is essential to the ocean being able to play this role in carbon sequestration as well. Uh, as we've said, the carbon sequestration though may also be a source of impact and so we need to do that carefully, but it has to be in a context of addressing those other issues as well. We cannot only focus on um, this carbon issue, uh, but that being said, the, the, the biggest threat to the planet as a whole is the climate change crisis. The ocean is the biggest carbon sink. It's already taken up 50% of the industrial age carbon, uh, we would really be in a much, much worse situation if the, if the ocean wasn't already playing this role. So we've got to really move forward rapidly, um, um, carefully with the carbon sequestration role of the ocean, but at the same time keep working on all this myriad, uh, all this myriad of other impacts on the ocean so that we've got that package of achieving a healthy ocean, but also one that uh, optimizes its carbon sequestration potential. And as we heard from the representative from the IMF, it's going to need policy to drive this, to create the 
environment where these values can be created and this other work you've talked about, I guess, can take place to create the, the right framework for all of this? Right, so we need, uh, we need the governments and the intergovernmental organizations to move forward with the kinds of policy and governance and rules and regulations uh, within the coastal waters and out to the 200 mile uh, uh, edge of the exclusive economic zone countries, sovereign nations have control over those, those, those waters. And so we can move forward with the use, the development of the ocean uh, for carbon sequestration uh, in those areas uh, with the, the appropriate rules and regulations that exist or can be established by governments. 41% of the planet is international waters. Uh, and so that area then comes under the law of the sea. Uh, there's the development of the additional biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction treaty which is going to create the, the ability for um, requiring, an, for example, environmental impact assessment and area-based management in the high seas. We need that kind of rule and regulatory process and situation to enable us to ensure that we um, are taking care of the high seas and those international waters, including uh, in their use for carbon sequestration. So that policy governance uh, piece is critical, it's essential, along with that being a, a way to ensure we've got the social license. Society overall, stakeholders need, need to feel that this work uh, to use the ocean, develop the ocean capacity for, for carbon sequestration is being done, again, carefully and responsibly and with good data and transparency um, and the governance is critical to that.